Hey everybody, welcome back to A Higher Future. I'm UB Simignetti as always from Interview IA. And uh, today, I'm, <laughs> this is gonna be a fun one because um, our, our guest comes from a background of interviewing and interrogation. So we're gonna get into that because there, uh, there's parallels to the work we do, right? As um, helping interviewers be better. So first of all, Michael Reddington, welcome to the show, man. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So how do you introduce yourself to people? I'm an executive resource and certified forensic interviewer. Uh, I'm also the okay. creator of the Discipline Listening Method and president of Inquasive. Really, we teach people to use the truth to their advantage. I love that. And um, it's interesting that a previous company that I worked for, we had CFIs. And so that's why it's really interesting because so it was a um, workplace uh, anonymous hotline technology okay. company, but we also did, did you know, investigations for organizations. And nice. So talk to me about how you got into that, first of all. Entirely by accident, man. I wish I had <laughs> one of these great, I had it all planned out. This is what I want to do stories. Uh, it was a situation where I'd gone back to school to get a business degree, wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do, but I needed to pay the bills. And so okay. a friend of mine talked me into joining him, a part-time job in investigations. One thing led to another, and he and I both made it up into the management ranks. And once we did, one of our chief responsibilities was identifying and having conversations with employees who, as we like to say, made regrettable decisions. They faced some circumstances. They probably didn't make the best decision in. And it was really our job to get them to tell us the truth about what happened and why. And more often than not, write it down for us. So we had it in their own words. And once I got involved in that process, I just really became fascinated to use a car analogy with what was under the hood. What makes this mm -hmm. work? How come we can talk to so many different people about so many different transgressions, if you will, in so many different situations, yet time after time after time after time, this process is working and people are telling us the truth. Yeah. So that is what really led me as my career progressed to start doing research, not just into interview and interrogation, but really in, into those psychological aspects. And during that phase, I really made two key realizations, at least they were realizations to me. The first is that the very best leaders and the very best interrogators capitalize on the same two core skills, vision and influence. Mm -hmm. And the second is that the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that, uh, I'm sorry, employees experience when they commit to saying I'll do it and customers experience when they commit to saying I'll buy it. Sure. Those realizations is what really led me to creating the discipline listening method and transitioning from the full-time interrogation career into serving as an executive resource. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because those parallels, um, I imagine you've seen this, these same kind of trend lines through a lot of the work that you've done. One of the ones I'm interested in that you, when you were talking, it got me thinking that this trend from bad hires, right? It, it, because it's not that we're, you know, to your point, they made a regrettable mistake. It wasn't necessarily egregious. I mean, I'm sure in some cases the offense is, but at the end of the day, what led an employee, uh, Do you, have you seen trends as to why an employee commits an offense like that? What, what why? 
yeah, there's there are several, and I'll, I'll keep it in very broad terms at this point because yeah. I'm sure there may be many people listening from many different industries and in different contexts and applications. But oftentimes, if you these two would actually fall on a Venn diagram. So depending on the person in the situation, they might overlap more. But generally, one or one or both have to exist at any point in time. And I'm assuming that we're talking about good people. I mean, occasionally yeah. we do run across people that literally say, well, I want to work for that company because I want access to that information or that merchandise or that event. <laughs> and as right. soon as I can get it, I'm out. So right. there are some of those, but thankfully not very many. So generally what happens is on one hand, there's some sort of change in their personal life. Something is different. Mm -hmm. Is there something with their marriage, something with their kids, their spouse's job? Um, did bills come due? Was somebody sick? Did I have to take care of a family member? Um, in today's mental health focus, you know, are they depressed or facing other challenges or something shifted in their personal life? And because it shifted in their personal life, they now make different decisions in the workplace. Yeah. The second, and again, sometimes these overlap to create the opportunity are let's try to think of some kind of middle of the road ways to say this, but either lacks standards and or conflicts in perception of leadership and employees. So mm -hmm. for me, when I think back to many of the investigations that I was called into throughout my career, one of the things that I would often do, especially if you know it was theft off the loading dock or different areas, is I would get there early and drive around the building. Mm -hmm. And almost always the building's a mess. So literally, if the building is a mess and the organization isn't keeping their policies and procedures in place, then for somebody who kind of is tripping or stumbling or something changes in their personal life, it's easier for them to justify doing something at work because the company clearly doesn't care. The other one, and this is something that is talked about a lot more these days, is the perception of care, quality, and attention between employees and management. If somebody doesn't feel like they're getting the attention, the promotion, the pay, the respect, whatever it is, then that sense of entitlement starts to brood where they feel mm -hmm. like they can go ahead and I don't want to say get even, take what's theirs, what they've been missing. I mean, there's any number of ways to say it, but those are generally the two. There's either something going on in their personal life and or some sort of disconnect at work with leadership or quality standards that generally lead to the two. And I'm kind of a nerd. I don't know how many of your, your listeners may be, uh, but Dan Airely years ago wrote a very interesting read, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and um, drastically summarizing his findings and what he writes about. But basically, his contention is that we are all capable of, quote unquote, dishonesty to the degree that we can justify it. And it remains consistent within our self-image. So I can I can still consider myself a good person. I'm only doing this because. Yeah. And those factors are, are two of the biggest umbrella categories that allow somebody down that mental road during difficult times. Well, and, and so selfishly, because of the work that we do, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on, are, are a lot of these situations unavoidable or can they be avoided by hiring the, the right people for your company. So to your point about kind of that misalignment between uh, leadership and employees, you know, or even, even on the personal side of things, like really understanding who are, your employees are and, and do their personal passions and mindset align with our company and our mission as a company. 
you know, not knowing that or just kind of making a 50-50 guess on whether our employee is going to be great for us or not, can, can some of these things be avoided by making better hires? The answer is yes. Now, to be fair, there's going to be a, a small portion, I'm not brave enough to put a number on it, that yeah. aren't unavoidable. Because we could do a great interview, we could onboard a great employee, and six months later, their personal life could fall apart. And yeah. there's nothing we could have done to know or control. All our procedures are in place, and they decide to take a risk based on something that we have no knowledge and control over. So to yeah. be fair, there's always yeah. going to be some that we can. That being said, yes, not only based on how we, inter- I, it's a multi-step process. So what are we doing to identify great candidates? What's the interview process like? And that interview process, by the way, isn't just the inquiry. There should also be experiential components as well. Just because somebody says they can do something doesn't mean they can't. Like, <laughs> sure. for, for me, one of the funniest things when I teach candidate interviewing that I'll get usually on a break is, you know, I hired someone and they said they could use this software program or they could build this or they could do whatever, but it turns out they can't. Okay. And I'm surprised because I asked them if the interview and if they could, and they said, yes. What did you expect them to say? (laughs) They wanted the job. The implied expected answer to that question is, yes, I can do it. So they're going to tell you yes, and then hope they have time to figure it out or they have a good support system. So one of the things is what type of experiential elements are we putting into the process? Not to be threatening or bullies, just to give people the opportunity to demonstrate their skills. Then there's the onboarding process. And then there's the engagement process. And each one of those has their own like, entire universe of experts that are out right. coaching and, and advising for all of those. But really, that's what it comes down to. Do, when, when we're hiring, do we know what we're actually hiring for? Everybody always says yes. And very, very often, the answer is not quite. Mm-hmm. Then are we sourcing candidates that fit that? Or are we sourcing candidates that just happen to hit enough keywords in our automated candidate tracking system that they get into the interview and we convince themselves they're going to be great? Yep. Then do we check out during the interview process because we're busy and we see this yep. as being a time suck? We'd rather be doing something else. Then are we really just praying we're going to hire tur- tur- turnkey employees? We don't need to coach them. We're just going to bring them on because they're perfect and leave them alone. Yep. And then when we do, now just some of these leadership disconnects and and some of these other things start to happen where people either feel like they're not supported or cared enough, or they start to identify glitches in the matrix, if you will, where right now they're not going to do anything about it. But 18 months from now, when they're mad enough, maybe now they can justify it. So I may have rambled a little bit and gone off track there. I'm happy to let you reel me back in, please. But yes, all of those (laughs) will add to it. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I love. It. I mean, I think that's you know, it, it, there, there is um, a, a powerful thing that I think a lot of companies fail to do well, which is really look at the whole life cycle of the employee, right? It's, it's it, it, right now it's sort of the, the, all of those are siloed, and and so right now most companies spend a lot of time um, screening candidates out of the process instead of screening them in, right? So there's one piece, but then how do you make that connection to them as an employee and continue that that relationship and that understanding of who that employee is? We lose some of that really critical information that we can gather from the interview process to inform what we know about them as an employee. And and so there's just, um, 
and again, a lot of it kind of literally goes back to, well, we don't have time, we don't have bandwidth to really do it right. We just need butts and seats. And so just go out and freaking find people right now. Yeah. And, and that's the pressure that's actually put on interviewers, hiring managers in the business from executives, from HR. Like interviewing doesn't live in HR. Interviewing lives with all of us out here who've got to do it because if we don't, you know, then then we, we don't get to, you know, build a better product or or provide a better service because we don't have enough people. So I think I think it's critical to understand the whole the whole life cycle and, and the, the critical points where if we mess it up here, we're gonna feel it, like you said, like 18 months later. Sometimes even three or six months later, when we've spent all that money to hire somebody and then they leave. And it's 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 a lot. <laughs> yeah, amen. And you said something earlier that I wanted to jump through the screen and fist bump you. If we legally could still do that to other people, I'm not so sure. There you go. But so many people approach the hiring process as a, I'm probably not going to use the words right, but an exclusionary process opposed to an yeah. inclusionary process. Yeah. They're screening people out. Yep. So we're literally, it's become a keyword search, not a key people search. Yeah, so they don't have enough years of experience or they haven't worked in this specific industry or I don't see one word on their resume. It's whether they're looking for the turnkey employee, whether they're trying to make their own life easier, whether oftentimes they're focusing on the wrong thing. When I work with people that are hiring HR, HR is a people problem business. Yes, yeah. you know, sometimes you might need union experience or, or different manufacturing. Like I get it. From time to time, there are specific pieces that you might need. But by and large, HR is a people process career. So do you really need someone that comes from your industry or do you really need someone that's great at understanding and working with people? They're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah. For years of experience, I was consulting with one organization that had two final candidates. Cliff Notes version of this story is they literally got in. We had a meeting in February of that year to look at the two final candidates. The VP says, for all intents and purposes, both candidates are equal. They had done a round of interviews in December. If either one had been interviewed in December, we would have hired that one. But they're both here now. One has 10 years of experience and one has two years of experience. So we're going to hire the guy with 10 years of experience. I'm sitting there scratching my head going, whoa, you'd rather hire the guy that it took 10 years to get this good over a guy that it took two years to get this good? Like, I'm not good at math, but let's reconsider this. Yeah, I lost that oh, soundly. Wow. But when we, look, when we look at, you said it, people look at interviewing as a pain. It's a drain on their time. They should be doing other things. So now instead of addressing the strategic stressors, of what long-term decisions do we need to make and what's the right process to put us in the right future positions. Yeah. They focus on the short-term tactical stressors of what do I need to do to make my life easier right now? And ironically, it often makes it harder right now and later. Exactly. They're justifying a, let's not say bad, but suboptimal hire at the moment right. for all of these other reasons and then reaping what they sow for the months and years to come. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's, it's funny because, so as a CFI, um, you, you were trained to be an interrogator, an interviewer, right? And so you were always prepared going into an interview. And so in that scenario, the candidate was more than likely the most 
uh, nervous and stressed out person in that room because you knew what you were doing, right? And you knew what you were looking for. But the opposite is true in, in job interviews uh, it, because most interviewers aren't trained and, and they're kind of left up to their own devices and they're, have, they're responsible for, for this pretty big decision. Um, and so I think that's another interesting thing to point out is we, we, we should take interviewing as interviewers more seriously as if, you know, like, because to be a CFI, you've got to go through a lot of training. You got to get certified for that. Well, I think interviewers should be the same. You know, it's like, we're looking for the truth. You said it earlier, but yet we don't conduct job interviews to do that. We look for the truth that's comfortable to me. You know, is it, it, I'm looking for somebody who looks like me or sounds like me or went to my school or I could get a beer with, but I don't know if they can do the job. It's just because it's just more comfortable for me. So I think that parallel is really fascinating. What, what, okay, so to kind of to close it up, like you said earlier, we could talk about this for hours, um, but what, what, so future of work in your mind, like what's your perspective on the future of, of interviewing and, and you know, finding out the truth about people you know, moving forward after these last 18 months? Oh, that's a loaded question and a couple of different ways to go with it. So a couple of top level thoughts, and then I'm happy to dive in anywhere you want. On the whole, I think the future of interviewing to me is fascinating because mm -hmm. as technology continues to expand and we continue to understand more and more and more about human interaction, you know, that cross section of science and technology can start opening up any number of opportunities. At the same time, it already is creating these perceived shortcuts that are marketed as creating more value, but they're really creating more issues. Yeah. And there's so many of them out there. I'm not going to name names or get into it, but we feel like, okay, it's a shortcut. We'll just trust this technology. But that backs up against something that you touched on just a second ago. Oftentimes, because many hiring managers, they're not trained, they have a thousand other things to do, and they're going to be held accountable for their hiring decisions mm -hmm. based on the stress that they're feeling they're incentivized either financially or emotionally they're incentivized to make the safe hiring decision not yeah. the hiring decision that reflects the most potential or the higher upside because if it they often think about it this way if this one goes bad what yep. can I point to to say this wasn't my fault? Exactly. As opposed to saying, looking at where we want to go as an organization, the team we have, the development structure we have in place, wanting to bring high potential people on board, who's somebody that, yeah, might take a little bit more training, a little bit more support, but they have these core characteristics of high potential individuals that can take off for us. And it's, that's it. I, I feel like technology really shorts that one. So that's that's kind of one answer. Yeah. Where it goes from here, you know, post pandemic is, is the world gets back to maybe someday in person hybrid, whatever it looks like. I think much of that is really unwritten. Certainly, we're not going back to where we were. There's no doubt about that. What different yeah. organizations do and how they choose to proceed and what happens in the world of entrepreneurship and solopreneurship with people being out of work and trying something new technology again. You never know. But I would say this in one of the conversations I've had a lot because of the the, the high volume of these virtual conversations people mm -hmm. are having, which off track, is it really a virtual conversation? Because I'm pretty sure you and I are having a real conversation <laughs> That's here. That's a great so just, point. 
when people say virtual conversation, I have to put my sarcasm in a hockey bag, <laughs> stuck it away. Somewhere. But is focus on what we do have, not what we don't have. All too often, people would get in a conversation like this and say, well, I can't see his body language. Well, statistically speaking, we probably do a terrible job at reading their body language anyway. Yeah. So literally, we can now be more in tune to what somebody is saying because we have less to focus on. You and I both have virtual backgrounds. I have no idea where you are right now or what's going on around you. So instead of worrying about your nonverbal communication, now I can focus on being prepared with my best game plan. I can focus on asking questions to steal a line from Tim Levine that are likely to get me diagnostically valuable results to help yeah. me make better decisions. And now I can be really in tune specifically to the verbal delivery of your response, because that's the main channel we have at this point. So right. instead of thinking about it as a watered down in-person conversation, you can think about it as like an enhanced telephone conversation. And there's still tons of valuable information that's out there for us. So for me, and this might be too non-committal for your listeners, and if it is, I apologize, but I would say regardless of where the future of work and specifically candidate interviewing goes, find the opportunities, find the value. Don't focus on what we do, don't have, focus on what we do have and really create the game plans necessary to put us in positions to be successful in whatever medium comes next. Mm. I mean, great, perfect mic drop, dude. That was, <laughs> I love that. That, um, th that that puts a real nice fine point on it and things I hadn't thought about as, as it relates to these kind of conversations. You know, there, there is an opportunity to um, hone in and really, you know, because if you think about it, right, like our five senses, and we, we teach this in some of our bias trainings that we do, we have so much information coming at us and our brains can't possibly process even a small amount of that so wouldn't it be better in a situation like this to be able to hone in on the most important part of this conversation as opposed to all the other stuff going on around i love i love that perspective i think that's i, I think you're right i think this can ultimately help us learn how to be more present with each other at the end of the day i think it can i really do it's all about it's about our focus, literally. We're going to go where our mind's eye is leading us. And specifically in the candidate interview space, do we really know the outcomes that we want this candidate to eventually achieve? Do we really know the skills and attributes they need to achieve those outcomes? Do mm -hmm. I really have a series of great questions and experiential elements that are like me to verify if somebody has the skills and attributes necessary to generate those outcomes? Or am I just doing exactly what their Google search or recruiter prepared them to do, which is answer the same generic questions every interviewer asks all the time to then either make a gut feeling decision, as you mentioned earlier, or rationalize the decision based on information that wasn't even discussed during the yeah, conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, so cool, man. Well, thank you, Michael Reddington, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, sir. Take care. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you all. A higher future. Check us out on uh, interviewia.com website. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.